We continue on through Matthew this morning, and uh, we were talking about last week how we're in a a narrative section. Remember how Matthew kind of alternates? He starts with a narrative, and then we went through the first main discourse, the time when Jesus is teaching his disciples in chapters 5 through 7. But we also said that in chapter 4, you remember chapter 4, where Jesus was calling his first disciples, uh, those who would follow him, those who would learn from him and be committed to him, uh, those who had committed to the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near, those who had turned allegiance from sin and self to follow him, to entrust themselves to him as king and master of their lives as Messiah, ultimately, as they will begin to understand more and more. But one of the things we noted last week is at the end of chapter 4, there was this kind of summary statement where Je- Jesus is in Galilee. He's, he's doing his ministry of uh, not merely teaching, although that's the core of it, but he's also healing. He's healing all sorts of sicknesses. He's casting out demons. Uh, even as he's called the disciples to be fishers of men, he's showing them what that looks like. He's healing people, and people are being attracted to this healing, uh, but then he's teaching them. He's calling them uh, to allegiance, and we really saw that message that was primarily directed towards the disciples in Matthew 5 through 7, and then secondarily for those crowds. Remember the crowds? are We're not sure if they're following because of just the miracles, whether they truly are uh, have allegiance to Jesus or not, if they're really going to follow him and commit as disciples. And uh, But the other end of the bookend of this section is in, in chapter 9, where we see the same summary statement where Jesus is going around all Galilee, healing all these diseases and afflictions in 935. And so after the Sermon on the Mount, we've, we've seen more of that, a more focused uh, 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 presentation of the sorts of miracles, the sorts of uh, healings that Jesus is doing. And so we saw that last, uh, the last couple weeks, Matthew 8, uh, the first few sections, we've seen these, these miracles. We talked about that, and we talked about in how that presented Jesus as that suffering servant from Isaiah, the one whose ministry will ultimately end in suffering for his people for their sin, but who is who's taking on the illnesses and pains of others to show that he is that one. He's dealing with the, the sort of uh, surface issues, the fruits of a sinful world, but ultimately he's going to deal with the greater disease of sin. But interspersed in these sections of miracles and healings, there are calls to discipleship. That's still Jesus' aim. He's still calling for disciples. And so since we've gone through the first few healings, now we enter a section today where Jesus is focused on discipleship, defining it more and more. He's already given a great deal of definition to what discipleship means, but he's going to keep defining that more and more. Jesus is doing that, but Matthew, remember Matthew is the one writing this gospel, and he's writing to a Jewish audience, probably primarily a Jewish Christian audience, but what uh, Matthew is doing, he's, he's writing this gospel, he's recording what Jesus taught, but he's also recording that for his, the, his audience. You've got to keep in mind that if you're a Jewish Christian in Palestine in maybe the 50s, 50s AD, right, after, 20 years or so uh, after Jesus has died, right, if you're a Jewish Christian, you're situated in the middle of a Jewish culture still. And uh, there's cultural pressures because of that. 
You see, the, there are those who are Jewish but not Christian, and they would put pressure on the Jewish Christians. You believe that that Jesus fellow who was crucified, who was cursed on the tree, you believe he was the Messiah? So even a lot of what Jesus has been teaching in the Sermon on the Mount uh, and even what he's going to teach today regarding discipleship, it would have application for Matthew's audience. You see, they still needed, as Jewish Christians, as those who are disciples of Jesus, or those who are learners and followers and those who obey Christ's teaching, they needed their discipleship continually refined as well. And so we get our, that concept of discipleship further refined today, and here's the main idea in the section in Matthew 8, 18 through 22. Here's the main idea that Jesus has, that Matthew has, and that is there for us as well, and it's this. Follow Jesus even if you forsake the comforts and conventions of the surrounding culture. Follow Jesus even if you forsake the comforts and conventions of the surrounding culture. And the, really how this is going to play out, there's going to be two, well, there's going to be one would-be disciple and there's going to be one disciple that's, he's a disciple, he's following Jesus, but based on the approach of these two individuals, we learn more about what it means to follow Jesus. So we see the first of these individuals under this heading, follow Jesus without the promise of comfort and security in verses 18 through 20. Follow Jesus without the promise of comfort and and security. Look at verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Now, remember where Jesus is. He is in uh, the he is in Galilee. In fact, he's kind of in the northwest uh, kind of portion of the Sea of Galilee, right on the coast. He's in Capernaum. So you can flip over to your book of maps if you want, and you can see Jesus' ministry, and you can see where Capernaum is. But it's, it's basically, if you were to think about the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, and just a little bit to the west is where Capernaum is. So he's there. Remember last week, that's where he healed uh, the, the centurion's servant. That's where he healed Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, so we have to, the geography there actually helps us out quite a bit, because uh, what's happened, right, with all of these healings, there's a big crowd. There's a big crowd around Jesus. This guy's healing everyone instantly, as many people are around him. And what you notice is, uh, in the way the text presents it, is Jesus sees this large crowd, and then because of that, he does this. He gave orders to go over to depart to the other side. The other side of what? Well, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. If you were to think about the Jordan River, the Jordan River basically cuts the, the Sea of Galilee in two. Uh, and oftentimes you would talk about going to the other side of the Jordan River. So kind of that's what's going on. He's going to the other side of the lake and the other side of that kind of imaginary dividing line of the Jordan River. But where he's going is important. We'll find out more when we see... Uh, He's taking a boat. We see that in 823. He's going to get into a boat and go across this lake. In 828, we're going to find out that he's going to the country of the Gadarenes, which is in a region uh, that is known as the Decapolis, 10 cities, uh, which is a Gentile region, or more predominantly Gentile anyway. So this is interesting. Jesus has been uh, ministering in Galilee. He's been ministering to Jews but now he's going to go across the lake, and he's going to go into a region of Gentiles. 
uh, which is fascinating. But notice why he's doing this. He's doing this because he sees this great crowd around him. Now, what's he doing? What's he doing? What he's doing is the same thing he had begun to do in chapter 4. We said that he's teaching his disciples to be fishers of men. That's really what he's been doing with doing his miracles and also preaching. Remember, the miracles are just foretastes of the coming kingdom that Jesus will rule over, over all the world where sickness and disease and pain and demon possession are totally gone. He's just giving trailers of the coming attractions. But once he's gathered this big old crowd, now it's time to sift through them. Now it's time to sift through them. And his movement in this particular way is going to sift the crowd. He's going to filter them. Uh, how do we know that? Well, because in 8.23, we get this brief statement. We'll talk about it more like next week. But it says this, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. That little brief statement indicates that uh, we've got this big crowd, and what we've said about this big crowd is we don't know where their allegiance lies. Are they just there for the miracles and kind of the cool uh, fireworks show, so to speak, or are they there for Jesus? And what he's about to tell these two individuals is filtering. It's going to filter down to the people who are really going to follow Jesus are his disciples. That's what disciples mean. Remember, we've said that a disciple is a learner and a follower of Jesus. Now, Jesus is in heaven right now, currently as we speak, at the right hand of the Father, and we still talk about discipleship, discipleship in the sense of still learning Jesus, uh, learning his teachings, uh, obeying them. Uh, uh, we can interact with Jesus through prayer and uh, the spirit whom he's given, uh, given us, but we don't literally follow him around like he's walking somewhere, right? But at this time, uh, to be a disciple of Jesus, you had to literally follow him around. And so that's what's going on. He's filtering the crowd and kind of uh, sifting out who are the real disciples. So you got to kind of picture in your mind's eye, he's got like one foot in the boat. He's about ready to go to depart for this reason. So he's kind of got one foot in the boat, and then he's got this fellow that comes up to him. Look at verse 19. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, first we have to remember who's a scribe. This, uh, a scribe was not just someone who copied documents in this day and time. That, that happened. They copied documents. They copied the scriptures. But because they were so close with the text of scripture, they were also given an official position in Israel to interpret the scriptures. What do they mean? And then also to help the people apply them. How, how does this apply to my life? So they were, they were the teachers, the official teachers of Israel, teachers of the people. Uh, now, you've, we often see them in Matthew, and we've seen them already in the Sermon on the Mount lumped together with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were more of a grassroots movement. They weren't official teachers, but a lot of people followed them as teachers. But here we've got an official teacher. He has position in society, probably uh, pretty secure in Israel as far as his position and, and uh, his livelihood, etc. And uh, he comes up and he speaks to Jesus. He says, teacher. 
Now, what's interesting, think back to last week. We think about other people have approached Jesus recently. We had the leper approaching Jesus last week, and we had the centurion approaching Jesus last week. And they started to talk to him, and the, the way they talked to him, they gave him an address, and their address was, Lord. This fellow says, teacher. And he's not wrong, but what we see in Matthew as we walk through Matthew is that oftentimes the people who are calling Jesus teacher, they're usually from the scribes and Pharisees, and they're usually viewed in a negative light. In other words, they don't recognize who Jesus really is. Now, Jesus himself, he, he talks about himself as being a teacher. He talks about in Matthew 23 that he, he's a teacher of the disciples. So it's not wrong um, for this thing, but it, it falls short a little bit. Now, hear what else he has to say. I will follow you. That's the language of discipleship. I'm going to follow you. Now, it says wherever you might go in the ESV, but, but literally it's wherever you might be departing, like right now. So it's not just, I'm going to follow you wherever you go in a general sense. It's actually, hey, where you're departing, it's the same word that, uh, you know, he's talking about uh, uh, departing to the other side. It's the same word that's used here. I will depart uh, with you wherever you happen to be departing to, right? So wherever you're going right now, Jesus, wherever you're going right now, I'm going to follow you. So what is this? What's this guy doing? Well, it is... The language he's using is the common language of pursuing discipleship. You see, in that, that, that time frame, Jesus wasn't the only person that had disciples. Uh, the t- various teachers of the day in that time, uh, they would gather disciples around themselves. But the way it worked is the teacher didn't go after disciples. The teacher did his thing, and then he gathered. People came and approached the teacher, saying, Teacher, I want to sit under you. I want to learn from you. I'm going to follow you around. And that's what this guy is doing. He likes what he sees. Maybe he's heard the Sermon on the Mount with the authority. Remember the authority coming from the Sermon on the Mount? Maybe he's heard that. He's seen the miracles. And he's like, yeah, this is the guy I want to follow. So Jesus, you're heading over across the lake. You're even going to Gentile territory. Well, wherever you happen to be going, I'm going to go with you. Now, nothing that the scribe has said so far is inherently bad or negative. There's just a little bit of suspicion in our minds as Hmm, why is this guy really coming? Now, notice what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't dissuade, uh, he does warn him, but he doesn't necessarily say, no, you can't follow me. But he does warn him. He does warn him. He wants him to have full disclosure of what it's going to mean. Do you really understand? It's not just following me here right across the lake right now. There's more to it than that. And notice what he says in verse 20. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What's he saying? Well, so foxes and birds, they're just kind of the, the, kind of the, the, the lowly creatures. Um, there's, there's no, uh, they're not necessarily viewed positively. Maybe they're even viewed a little bit negatively. But even those kind of lowly creatures, they have a place to go. They have a certainty of going back to their burrow or to their nest. But he's saying this, the Son of Man, referring to himself, and we'll talk about that title because that title is very important, but he's referring to himself and he's saying, I, I, the Son of Man, that's me, 
has nowhere to lay his head. He's essentially saying, uh, okay, if you're going to follow me, if you're actually going to come where I'm coming, you have to realize that you have the same uncertainty I have. I don't have the certainty of being able to uh, go to um, you know, a nice inn or someone's house. We don't know. He's going uncertain. Uh, there's, no, there's no comfort. There's no security to this. Versus probably the scribe's background, like we said, he has an official spot in Israel, and he probably has comfort and security, but Jesus is challenging him, saying, this isn't a picnic. If you're going to follow me, you have to follow me into the uncertainty. I don't know where I'm going to lay my head. I don't know uh, where my, my provisions are going to be. Which is kind of amazing once we, when we understand what Jesus has already what Matthew has already revealed Jesus to be, right? He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is that king who will ultimately reign over all the world. And yet, at this time, in this place, he has no certainty. He has no comfort, no security. Now, this is even more striking when he uses this term, Son of Man. Now, this is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that this term, this title of Son of Man has been used. Actually, it's Jesus' favorite title for himself. It's Jesus' favorite title for himself. But what you have to understand, like a lot of things in the New Testament, one phrase, one word has a whole bunch behind it. And that's the case with this title, Son of Man. So I want to give you kind of the overview of all that's writing on this term, this title, Son of Man, because we're going to see it a bunch in Matthew. So Whenever we see it, we need to have this background in our mind. So let me give you the background to the Son of Man title and why and how Jesus is using it here. On the surface of it, just using the language itself, Son of Man, uh, in the Old Testament, there are similar terms uh, like Son of Adam. And, and literally, at a, a, just a bare level, it talks about a human being. It talks about one who is an offspring of Adam, so a human being. A human being. At a, at a base level, at a, just a just a surface level, that's what the term means. But if you were to go back to Genesis, right, you have the background of Genesis 1 through 3. Adam was supposed to be this king, this steward king under God over the whole world uh, to repurpose and retask and reshape God's creation for God's glory. And yet we saw that Adam and Eve sought to usurp God's authority and brought sin into the world. So now man is fallen, man is weak. Man has to face death. And that trajectory continues. You go through Genesis 5, the chapter of death, and then you reach something like the Tower of Babel, which is the first time the phrase son of man, actually sons of men, is used in Genesis 11:5. Sons of men. And the sons of men, human beings, the offspring of Adam, what are they doing? They're building this tower that's trying to reach to heaven. They're trying to make a great name for themselves rather than to make a great name for God. And so what the term, and even as you were to go through some of the Psalms and some of the other Old Testament passages, this terminology of son of man or sons of men has the connotation of weakness, of fallenness uh, from what Adam's position originally was. Until you get to the book of Ezekiel. If you ever read Ezekiel, the term son of man is used a lot of Ezekiel. You're like, why is that? I thought sons of men were weak. They were uh, fallen, uh, had that connotation. That's true. 
Ezekiel is a prophet of the Lord, but what Ezekiel is doing, he, in uh, the book of Ezekiel, he's not just a prophet, he's also a stand-in and a representative for a weak and sinful and fallen Israel. He's He's a stand-in. He's a representative. He's a mediator. He's not only, he's representing a weak and fallen people, but he's representing them before God. He can act on their behalf before God. So that's what Ezekiel adds to the concept. So you see, we've got the starting concept in Genesis, and then it builds in Ezekiel where it's like, okay, sons of men, they're not just weak and fallen, but now we've got this added concept where a son of man, like Ezekiel, could be God's agent to represent sinful and weak sons of uh, men on behalf of God and to act for them. And then this trajectory ends, uh, or kind of culminates in Daniel 7. In Daniel, uh, which is a book that has a great deal of background for Matthew in particular, but the, the Gospels in general, uh, you have, and J- Daniel, Daniel's all about God's kingdom versus the kingdoms of the world. So you can kind of see how this filters into the Gospels, talking about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew's been talking about it, as Jesus has been proclaiming it. But here's where we get kind of the culminating pinnacle of this stream about the Son of Man. So turn to Daniel 7, if you haven't already. Hopefully there was a little note in the the notes for you to note that that's where we're going next. But let me give you a little bit of backdrop. We're not going to read the whole chapter. There's a lot there in Daniel 7, although it would be worth your time to do so. Daniel 7 is a key chapter in the Scriptures. But what you see at the beginning of Daniel 7 is you see see this vision that Daniel has, and he sees a bunch of water, and then he sees a bunch of beasts coming out of the water, and you're like, hey, wait a minute. That kind of seems familiar. That reminds me of Genesis, when everything was, there was, at the beginning there was water, and then all this stuff comes out that God, all these animals come out that God creates. It's hearkening back to what God did in creation, although this time the beasts that come out, the animals that come out, they're deformed monsters, and the deformed monsters represent kings and kingdoms. They represent kings and kingdoms. What's interesting, this corresponds actually to Daniel 2. Again, don't, you don't have to turn there, but you could read it later. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's statue? You got the gold head and the, the silver uh, torso and all of that. It's the same four kingdoms. From a human perspective, the way Nebuchadnezzar sees it, they look beautiful. From God's perspective, which is what we get in Daniel 7, they look like hideous beasts. Because really, that's what's happened. Remember, Adam was supposed to have this stewardship reign over all things, and it was supposed to be wonderful, submitted to God. But humankind has made it selfish, made it monstrous. And that's what happens with these seven beasts. But after the fourth beast, the most terrifying beast, we get this in verse 9. So Daniel 7, 9. As I look, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took a seat. That's God. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn, that's the horn on the fourth most terrifying beast, was speaking. 
And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion, these other kingdoms, was taken away and their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So what happens? We got this creation scene, the destruction of these beasts, the judgment of God, but then the kingdom of the whole world is given to a son of man, a son of Adam, one who will do what Adam was supposed to do. He is a son of man in that he is human, but the prerogative of riding with the clouds of heaven in the ancient world was only for deity. So he is at once a human being and divine coming before God and being given this kingdom. So, but if we tie that together with what we've seen about sons of men both so far, sons of men are weak, they're fallen, and yet there can be, like Ezekiel, one to act and represent the weak and fallen sons of men and to act on their behalf. And that's what this one does. Because if we keep reading, we see whom he represents. Look at verse 18. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him for the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Now, wait a minute. I thought the Son of Man was just given this kingdom. And here what we see is the saints of the Most High. Believers, we can just put it like that. Believers are given the kingdom. Well, that's the representative nature of being the Son of Man. This Son of Man is an individual. He represents weak and fallen, sinful human beings, but he also acts on their behalf. And this Son of Man, unlike Adam, is triumphant. He wins. He wins, and he's given the kingdom, so therefore his people, his saints, are given the kingdom. But what you have to understand as well, and this will feed into what's going on in Matthew Look at verse 19. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and about the other horn that came up before which the three of them fell. The horn that had its eyes and mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. And I looked, this horn, uh, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So we get that same ending, that the saints possessed the kingdom, but after suffering, after hardship on the part of the saints. But remember, the Son of Man is a stand-in for his people, and he experiences what they experience. Which all of that feeds into exactly why Jesus uses this term, in Matthew in general, and even in our passage in particular. 
You see, Jesus is claiming to be that son of man. And you might be like, well, why does he use that term? Why doesn't he just say, I'm the Messiah? Or why doesn't he just say, uh, you know, I'm the son of David or I'm the son of God? Why didn't he just say that? Because each of those terms in Jewish ears at the time had a lot of baggage with it. A lot of people just thought, oh yeah, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to establish this kingdom for the Jews and it's going to be great and he's going to crush the Romans and it's going to be awesome. And in a sense, they were right. There is a political aspect to being the Messiah, but they missed a lot of other things. It became skewed. It became distorted. And so if Jesus wants to refer to himself as the Son of Man, the Son of Man was not a very prevalent term to refer to the Messiah. It's there in the Old Testament, but it was not a very prevalent term to be used. So Jesus is being strategic with his use of this term. He's saying, I am that Son of Man. I am a human being, but I'm that human being. And it, 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 for the person who would hear that, it would take some time to, put, to connect the dots and say, oh, that's what he's talking about. But he's using it in exactly the way that the rest of the Old Testament talks about it. Look back at verse 20 in Matthew 8. We, so I just gave you the backdrop of that title. There's a lot to it. Now we come back to Matthew to understand how he's using it. Matthew 8, 20. And Jesus said to him, the scribe who wants to follow him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The Son of Man is a stand-in. He's a representative, a weak, fallen, suffering uh, human beings. That's what the Son of Man, that's what Jesus was going through in his earthly ministry, right? Not, not only in this moment, right, he's He's wandering around. He doesn't have any security. He doesn't have any comfort at this point in time. But if you understand the Old Testament backdrop of the Son of Man, it's like that's only for a time. That's only for a time because eventually he will be the ruler of the entire world. And so he's talking to this scribe, and essentially what he's saying is, if you follow me, there's, if you follow me right now, there's no promise of comfort and security right now. But if you also understand the backdrop of the Son of Man term, then you know the payoff is coming. The payoff is coming. The Son of Man will be triumphant, and not only will he receive the kingdom, he will, he will share that authority with the saints. So he's not telling the scribe no. He's saying, Get, know what you're getting in for. Know what you're getting in for. You see, there's no promise for Jesus' disciples, both then and now, of comfort and security. There's no promise now. Not right now is there the promise of comfort or security. There's none. You look through Christianity through the ages, mostly uh, it's a bunch of poor people who um, get uh, persecuted and slaughtered. That's kind of what Christianity is. We're just kind of in an anomaly in the last couple hundred years in the U.S. where we enjoy comfort and security, and that's a gift from the Lord, and we give thanks for those things, but there's no promise. There's no promise of comfort and security in following Jesus now. Though there is the hope of ultimate security and comfort in the Son of Man when he comes again, riding on the clouds of heaven in the future. 
See, as a disciple, you must be willing to give up security and comfort in our culture right now to follow Jesus. You may receive security and comfort. God may give you those gifts, and you give thanks for those things, but there's no promise. There's no security right now in following Jesus, though there is ultimate security. There is ultimate comfort in him as the treasure. The treasure is not here and now. He is the treasure. The kingdom is the treasure, and the kingdom is the treasure because it's centered around the king, Jesus, both God and man. We struggle with this. This is, this is easy to get trapped into, I need my security, I need my comfort. But we need to realize as Jesus' disciples, there is no comfort and security right now. We play the long game. We play the long game trusting our great king, our great son of man, who is our triumphant representative. So he's warning the scribe, and he's warning us. But then we see this other fellow who comes up to Jesus in verse 21. And in 21 through 22, we see this main idea, follow Jesus with urgency, forsaking, when necessary, cultural conventions. Follow Jesus with urgency, forsaking, when necessary, cultural conventions. Look at verse 21. Another of the disciples said to him, now pause there for a second, that's how the ESV renders it, another of the disciples, literally it's a different person, a different one of the disciples. See, the last guy we just saw, he's approaching Jesus as saying, I want to be your disciple. So he's not a disciple yet, he wants to follow Jesus. He's initiating the relationship. But this guy, uh, this is a different guy, and he's one of the disciples, not necessarily one of the 12. There's more than 12 disciples, right? But here's someone who's already committed to Jesus. How do we know that? Well, he says it's a different one of the disciples, but then later he's going to, uh, in verse 22, Jesus is going to say, follow me, and literally it's keep following me, keep following me. So this guy's already been following Jesus for some time. He's heard his teaching. He's seen his miracles. This is someone who's already following Jesus. So a different one of the disciples said to him, Lord, notice the difference in the the appellation, right? The scribe says, teacher, uh, this disciple saying, Lord. And like we said last week with the, the, um, the, the leper and with the centurion, Lord is more than politeness. It's probably less than an ascription to deity, but it recognizes that Jesus is the agent of God um, and he is, he's God's representative. He is, and some might be getting to dawn on the idea that this is the Messiah. They ought to be. They'll eventually get to that point. But at the very least, this one's following him as Lord, as master. Let me first go. Now that word go is the same word that we've been using all along, depart. Remember, Jesus is departing. Uh, the scribe said, I will depart and go with you wherever you happen to be departing right now. This guy says, let me first depart and bury my father. So this guy is asking, what is this guy asking for? He's asking uh, for a leave of absence. That's what he's asking for, right? He's been following Jesus, and Jesus is about, remember, he's got like one foot in the boat ready to go over to the other side, to this Gentile side of the lake, and he's saying, well, before we go there, Jesus, I have this uh, family obligation I need to tend to. Can I first, can I first depart for a little bit of time 
and go and bury my father? Can I take a leave of absence? Can I go deal with this? And then the implication is he wants to come back. Now, here's the thing you have to understand. To really understand this situation, we need to understand first century Jewish burial customs. Wouldn't that be helpful to understand what he's talking about? What are first century Jewish burial customs? So here's the thing. Uh, when someone, uh, uh, a son was responsible, he had the closest responsibility in dealing with the burial of his parents. It was a, it was a duty uh, really seen as an implication of the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, right? And so the son has this responsibility when his parents died. But when people died um, at that time, so this guy's father dies, uh, as evidently it, it's already happened, um, the burial usually took place on the same day. So usually what would happen is the person died in the house, they prepped the body, and then they go and place it in a cave or a tomb. And the cave or the tomb would have maybe like a shelf or niches, and there would be a lot of decomposed family members still in that tomb. It's like the family tomb, the family niche. Um, and so that's where the term, uh, we think, gathered to your fathers came from, right? You're literally being placed in the tomb with your ancestors is the idea. So that usually happened on the same day. You go and put the body in the tomb, for it to decompose. But then, once you did that, you're in a time of mourning, and you can't go out. Uh, you can't go out into society. So there's, uh, there's a week of intense mourning, there's a month of less intense mourning, but you still can't go out into society. Uh, and then, what would happen is the body would decompose over the course of a year, and at the end of the year, the family would come back to the tomb, and you've just got the skeleton... And you take the skeleton and you put it in what's known as an ossuary. I don't know if you've ever heard of an ossuary before, but it's a little stone box that, um, that, that, um, uh, that they kept skeletons in, in the family tomb. Uh, and they've, they've found a lot of these in archaeological digs. So this is the normal way this happens. You've got a primary burial and then a secondary burial. Once that secondary burial of the bones was concluded, mourning ended. But there was mourning through that whole year at a, at a certain level. It was more intense the first week and a little more, uh, less intense for a month and then in general for the year. But here's the thing, knowing that, what burial is the disciple talking about? He can't be talking about the initial burial because he'd be in mourning. He wouldn't be out in society at all. His responsibility would be dealing with the body that day and getting it into the tomb. So he's talking about the secondary burial. So he's talking anywhere from maybe 11 months to a few weeks, we don't know, of going back to the tomb as the son, and this was the cultural obligation, uh, as the son to finish uh, gathering the bones, putting them in the ossuary, putting them in the niche with the rest of the dead in that, in that uh, niche or tomb, and then ending the mourning period. And that's what he's asking for. He's asking for a leave of absence to go do that. Notice what Jesus says to this. You kind of think, well, that sounds reasonable, right? Like Family Medical Leave Act in first century Israel. I can go take care of this, right? Um, but verse 22, and Jesus said to him, follow me. And I already said, that's literally keep following me. He's already been following. Keep following me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, we often read this as leave the spiritual dead to bury the physical dead, I think they're both 
it's, it's talking about the physical dead that are already in the tomb. Let them handle your father's final burial, right? Let them handle it. Let the bones that are already in there handle your father's secondary burial. And that would have been shocking culturally, right? Uh, this, is, this is a way of honoring your father. This is a way of honoring your family. And Jesus isn't opposed to that per se, but what's the issue? The issue is priority. The issue is priority. Keep following me. Keep following me right now because here's the reality. The disciple's father is dead. Jesus is alive right there and is the king. Jesus and the kingdom are far more pressing concerns than fulfilling a social obligation. A lot of commentators will say, well, if, he, if Jesus is asking him to break the fifth commandment, no, he's not. There's no direct command that says you have to do the secondary burial. That was just a cultural application of that reality. So following Jesus is a more pressing concern than this social obligation which can do no good to the dead father. The father's already dead. Even though it's a a presentation of honoring the father, he's already dead. So Jesus is saying, let the dead, let those bones that are already in there bury the dead. They can take care of what's necessary, meaning what? It's not necessary. What's in front of you is more important. Jesus is not against this social obligation per se, but in this instance, it's tangibly getting in the way of following Jesus. It's tangibly getting in the way of following Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I take precedent. It's more important. It's more important that you keep following me. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. What's there for us? We could ask it like this. Where do social concerns or obligations get in the way of following Jesus? See, Jesus trumps family. That's, the clo- that's most of us, when we think of what's our highest obligation, we think of our family. And biblically speaking, right, after God comes family. But Jesus is saying, I'm above family. Which in a, in a sense, right, by implication, he's saying, uh, I'm, it's a, you could see it as a, another way of saying he's God, right? He's claiming that for himself. He's claiming for himself an honor above family, which only God gets. But where do social concerns and obligations, think of those in your mind in our own day, where can they get in the way of following Jesus? Where do family concerns get in the way of you following Jesus? Jesus. Now, I can give you a a few thoughts I had. These by no means exhaustive, but here's one. Sports. It is a social, uh, not necessarily obligation, but a social good in our day to say, oh yeah, put your kids in sports, right? Get them uh, visiting other people, working as a team. Those are good things, right? Those are not bad things at all, right? But the reality is, unfortunately, in a secular environment, a lot of Games and practices and whatever else happen on a Sunday. So when rubber meets the road, are you going to take two months or three months off of church, or are you going to follow Jesus? Now, I'm not saying that 
Going to church equals following Jesus, but I'm saying that is one manifestation. God, uh, Christ has saved a church, a people for himself, and one of the means of grace as growing his people is for them to gather regularly in the church. You can hear other things. Sunday is a family day. We do family things. We do family things uh, for family Thanksgiving, not, not, on, the, not on Sunday. Um, we do family things, right? We go on vacations, and that's a good social thing. It's a good bonding experience with family. Nothing wrong with that. But, and again, I'm not just picking on Sunday and showing up to church on Sunday, but, right, how often does that get in the way of gathering with God's people? Here's another one, and I, I hate this one. I've seen it so much during this last couple years. I've seen, you've got the grandparent, grandchildren, and the child right in the middle, right? I've seen children holding their parents hostage with health concerns in COVID. I've seen that, right? Uh, you know, if you go to church, that's fine if you want to go to church. And again, I'm not, it's not just about going to church, but I've just seen this, right? You want to go to church, that's fine. You just can't see your grandkid. I've seen that. I've literally seen that. And at that point, the person's got to make the choice. Unfortunately, shame on the person who's forcing the grandparent to make that choice. Shame on them. But unfortunately for the grandparent, at that point, they've got to make the choice. Am I going to go to church or am I going to see my grandkid? Jesus say, keep following me. That's how serious Jesus is about following him. That's how much he commands your loyalty if you're his. There is nothing and no one more pressing than following Jesus. Nothing and no one more pressing than following Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. And there are other things. We know this, right? There are other cultural sensitivities, cultural obligations that if you follow Jesus... You're going to do things that offend cultural sensitivities and obligations. It's just going to happen because the church is the counterculture to a world that doesn't follow Jesus. And you need to see, when that happens, you need to see following Jesus is more pressing than these. You can think of the cultural sensitivities and obligations that we're now facing, maybe facing for the first time in generate, or maybe ever, And it's going to be a choice. Are you going to follow Jesus or are you going to give in to the cultural pressure? And Jesus says, keep following me. Keep following me. Because, not just all suffering, right? Because I'm the son of man. The son of man came and he lived and he suffered and he died. And he's coming back to claim his kingdom and to give his kingdom to those who will follow him. Following Jesus is not easy. There's no promise of comfort now. There's no promise that you will fit it in, that you'll fit in with a surrounding culture. You're going to stand out. But you need to see the surpassing treasure of Jesus and his king. That's what's going to motivate you. That's what's going to keep you. No comfort, no security now. Why would you do that? going against cultural pressures, right? Think about Matthew's day. You've got these Jewish Christians that are there in the middle of this culture. They're following Jesus, and then they've got their fellow Jews that are not Christians putting pressure on them, right? Imagine that, but you keep following Jesus. Why? Because he's the treasure. He's the son of man. 
he's the one that owns everything, ultimately. We get to, by grace, possess that kingdom with him in the future. That's the motivation. Follow Jesus, even if you forsake the comforts and conventions of the surrounding culture. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to follow you, um, and at times it's very clear, and at times it's very unclear of what is the next right step. So we pray for wisdom. We pray for help. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace to see what you've promised, who you are, and that we would keep following you even over and above family and social obligations. Uh, Lord, help us. We love our comfort and security. Guard us from loving those things more than you. Lord, let us love you above all and help us to endure no matter what for your namesake and for what you've promised. We thank you for the gift, the grace. It's all by grace of making us your people with you as the treasure, as you you ruling over a restored earth in your kingdom in the future. Lord, we look forward to that. Give us endurance. Give us grace to keep following you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.